Hello and welcome to The Artist Appeals, the podcast where we answer the question, how do you make a living with your art? In this podcast, we interview leading industry experts, working artists and creatives about how they make a living with their art. We seek the secret sauce to how do you make a living with your art? art? How do you make money with your art? So whether you're a photographer, a graphic designer, an illustrator, a hand letterer, are you a designer, a sculptor, a painter, whatever your medium may be, we have answers. We interview everybody we can get our hands on, leading industry experts from craft company CEOs to working entrepreneur, artistpreneurs. So welcome to the Artist Appeals. I am your host, Erin Sparler, and this is season three. Hey, Amy, welcome. <laughs> well, well, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm glad to have you here. We had a little pre-conversation. And I'm still giggling it, giggling <laughs> from it. So, Amy, I always start out with art and ask people, um, what do you make and how did you come to start doing this type of art? How did you find your voice? How did you find your niche? Oh, well, actually, it's it's kind of interesting because um, I'm not actually formally trained as a visual artist. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually a, uh, a formally trained musician. I went to college as a music ed major and got up to my junior year, was going to take my junior standing. And I'm like, yeah, this is not for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my parents are probably like, what? <laughs> After all that work. Oh, God. Yes. I mean, you have to understand, I was so determined. I was going to be a high school band director. I was determined. I was in all of the honor stuff. I was drum major in high school. I was like the ultimate band nerd. And I decided that, you know, One just time in band camp. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So what I ended up doing is I, I realized that I needed to take a break from college. And, and mm. at the time, 
I was paying for, you know, two thirds of my education. And, you know, that's, you don't spin the wheels when you're paying, paying out of your own pocket. And so right. I needed to figure out what it was I wanted to do and um, kind of find my, find myself. And I mm-hmm. did a couple of things. I worked in, in credit authorizations. And then I, I happened into uh, actually out of all things, human resources. And, um, and then eventually I worked in a professional nonprofit as an administrator for a uh, public radio station, a classical public mm. radio station here in town. Um, but all along, one of the things I kept doing, of course, to keep this, this you know, revenue coming in is I continued to teach private lessons. I had started doing that in college and also while I had been working for a music company and um, I kept teaching all throughout that process. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, and I was still actively engaged in, in, in my community. And I was actually sitting on a, on a nonprofit board for arts. And mm-hmm. I, I realized that, you know, it, it was, it was like kind of calling to me, you know, the, that, Hey, this painting thing looks kind of interesting. I always won my Arbor Day contest at the school. Maybe I need to give this a whirl. And it came to the point where I actually, my husband and I, we bought our first house and we, I, we had moved and we moved to an area where um, <laughs> I, it didn't make sense for me to continue teaching lessons anymore because I was literally in the backyard of two of the major universities here in Cincinnati where there were a lot of college students who need that extra money. And I was making good money doing what I was doing at the time. And I didn't need it anymore. And I didn't need to to take those opportunities away from those students. So, but what I did realize is that I needed a creative outlet. And, um, I, you know, because I wasn't performing anymore. I wasn't teaching anymore um, in terms of music. And I really craved that creative expression that I, Mm. that I had. And so one of the things that I did, um, was, and I was, this is at this, it was all happening while I was working at, at the radio station Mm -hmm. is that I, uh, I had purchased a painting kit at, you know, one of our local art stores. watercolor or? No, acrylics because, and here's my mindset behind it because at the time I had two dogs and I did a little research beforehand. I had two dogs mm-hmm. and um, I didn't want something that would take too long to dry or be too messy. Okay. <laughs> because I didn't want to be picking dog hair right. <laughs> out of my stuff or having my dogs knocking things down. So <laughs> I bought this little acrylic paint set and we have like one of those you know, little like 20, you know, 20 different colors and stuff and, and uh, <clears throat> We were going on vacation, so I thought, oh, this would be great. When I'm on vacation, I'm going to go and I'm going to paint. And I'm going to, you know, use this opportunity to, to, to explore. You know, I'm going to have time. And so I, we went down to, and, and I have a special connection to this place because of this very thing. But we, we went down to, uh, my aunt had a place down in Destin in the Myanmar Beach area. In Destin, Florida, mm-hmm. and she had a place there since I was a kid. And um, I remember everybody had gone out golfing for the day or off to do other things. And I had that perfect moment by myself. And I'm I'm out on this beautiful patio that overlooked the the 
near the Gulf of Mexico and it's beautiful waters. There. I don't know if you've ever been down to Destin. It's just gorgeous. And I just, I'll never forget it. Cause it was like a very magical moment because I had, you know, the paint on my brush and that very first moment that I put brush to canvas, mm-hmm. I knew, I knew in that very moment when I stroked, when I stroked my canvas paper, that this was what I needed. And this was my new home. And at first I started painting just for myself and I wouldn't show anybody. And uh, a fellow artist who I knew from my involvement with uh, nonprofit arts organizations, uh, she had, had known that I was doing some web design and she'd asked me to help her design her site. And she happened to be over at my place and she saw some of my artwork out and she's like, Oh, you need to, you need to like, you need to show this to other people. You need to, you need to start. Yeah, I'm like, oh, whoa, another, you know, cause in my mind, I'm like, yeah, Marion, she's a legit artist and she really is. She's a wonderful lady. And for her to tell me that I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not that bad after all. <laughs> yeah. It's always really nice to have that sort of affirmation um, because it, the opposite end is so harsh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so she told me, she, uh, she had a studio at a place here in Cincinnati where they had taken an old warehouse and they had subdivided into about a hundred different art studios and uh, they call it Essex studios. And, um, okay. and there was an opening in the building and she said, you know, there's a studio opening. You should rent the studio. You can paint in your spare time, but that's a great place for you to meet some of your web clients. And I'm like, Oh, okay. That sounds like a decent idea. Um, I rent, I, you know, I rented the studio and I never met any web clients there and I only painted. (laughs) (laughs) And so the kind of painting I do is I do contemporary abstract art. Um, I gave myself a gift in that um, having grown up, as I mentioned before, being formally trained as a musician, Mm -hmm. I gave myself the gift of not being trained as a visual artist. I know that sounds weird, but... I didn't, I wanted to paint freely and not, not based on other, other person, uh, another person's perception as to what's right, what's wrong, or how I should be doing it. Mm. And because I was doing it solely for myself in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it really, it really was, I mean, it was a lot of hit and miss. And, and the great thing was, is that where I was located, you know, being in that community, there were lots of artists there and you get to know everybody. And, and when I would come across a, a, a challenge, it was easy to, you know, my, I mentioned Marion earlier, I would walk across the hall to Marion and say, Hey Marion, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm having a struggle here. And she's like, yeah, have you tried some burnt sienna? You know, it's like, oh, I didn't. you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it was, it was great because I had, it, I had, I had kind of built, a support network of people who got who I was and what I was trying to do. And, uh-huh. and I was surrounded by some really great artists who were incredibly supportive of watching me grow and express myself and doing so without having the confines of what someone else thought I should be doing. And it was great. It, so that, like I said, it was a gift I gave myself because you know, I, I, think I that's fantastic. years doing Baroque music and believe me. <laughs> Baroque? You were doing Baroque music? 
yeah, I was, a, I played flute. So it's like, you want to talk about being in a box and very, you know, confined and very well, structured. You, do you know the Baroque style of art? Is, is Baroque music like Baroque art? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of the same influences influence. I mean, you have to think about it. The, your visual artists and your musicians, uh, they were all hanging out and drinking with their, their, pay, their pay, wealthy patrons. Where do you think right. they get that from? <laughs> right, right. But Baroque is really ornate and really like over the top. Mm -hmm. So is the music the same? It kind of is. I like to think of it. I mean, I oversimplify my analogies. Um, in my right. mind, it's it kind of reminds me of music box. It's very, very calculated. I mean, you had this is the era when they were using things like the golden mean, so it's very calculated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not the time where you're overtly expressive. I mean, you can have some expression, but it's not like jazz. It's not like you know, right? Not free form. Exactly. You can have expression, but it's it's limited. It's it's, it's a lot different than. Um, mm -hmm. So the gift of 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 what I gave myself in terms of um, my career as an artist was that I did not want to do that because my tendency is to want to, you know, you tell me to do something, I want to give you what you t I want to deliver what you expect, and so I did not go and seek formal training because then I wouldn't really be expressing myself. I would just be presenting what I thought someone else would want and. And I know exactly that would have been what happened because I did go a second round at college as a web design major and I took a design class and that's exactly what happened. I, in this design class, I kept turning in, I turned in stuff that I thought I, you know, I did it with my hand and my, you know, and I was really pleased with it and the instructor just didn't like it. And he just, it was always, a, it was always a B, always the same. It was always like eight points out of 10. It was driving me insane. Yeah, because right. this time around in college, I'm like, I'm that non-traditional student. I'm like that older lady. I'm a lady, yeah. first of all, in a design class with a bunch of dudes. And I'm older. And it was driving me insane because he just did not like my design aesthetic. And so I pulled him, I pulled him aside in the hallway after class. I'm like, okay, what is it that you want? Because he's, well, I just want you to, to, to give me to give me your, you know, express you. And I'm like, I am, and you're giving me a B. So clearly we're not seeing the same eye to eye. I go, if you were my web, cause I had already had web clients for, for years. And mm -hmm. I said, if you were one of my clients, I would be asking you, what is it you want? And I'm going to deliver what it is you want. So I'm at the point now, you clearly don't like my design aesthetics. What is it that you want so that I know what to turn in? Cause you're, right. cause it's starting to mess up my grades. <laughs> cause I, you know, I was on the Dean's list and I was not happy about well, I love the way you just approach that because it's true. You've got to just ask a client, what is it you want? Whether you're doing commission work, whether you're doing web design, you know, they hire you for your aesthetic. And if they don't like your aesthetic, then it's not a good match and you've got to fire the client. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and unfortunately you can't fire your professor, but um, that was, but that, that, that kind of really kind of summarized why I did not seek formal training for my actual painting and for my, for my visual artwork because, because of exactly that, because I would be always trying to appease the professor or the person in, in the, you know, I'm just that overachieving kind of jerk in the class and I don't need that. And I, I wanted it to be a true expression of what I do. 
And so I do contemporary abstract art, and I'm really known for movement in my artwork. So when you look at my artwork, you'll actually see a lot of, it's the, the most frequent phrase that I hear people say is that they really like the movement of my work mm -hmm. and they like my vibrant colors. And I also use uh, metallic and iridescence in my work from time oh, to I time. Love those. So it adds depth and dimension. So the, those combinations really are what set my work apart. And, and the fact that it really truly is um, my expression. And, and, and at the same time, yeah, I know I'm not the world's not, I'm definitely not the world's best artist. I am, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be on any museum walls anytime soon. And I even had a, a really good friend, artist friend of mine when I first met him. I remember he came into my studio and he's like, he look, looked around in my studio because at the building where I was at, we had, um, we would have these big open houses and um, mm -hmm. I used to organize those open houses and stuff. But I remember the first time he came into my room, he walked into my studio and he looked around and, he, and he's like, this is very nice, very nice. He goes, very livable. This is very livable. And you know, it stuck with me for years. And it wasn't until several years later um, when I was no longer Essex and my husband and I, we bought this building that um, we renovated and I moved my art studio and opened up a gallery. And I had invited him and a couple of my other artist friends to show as a, in a group show in my gallery space. And I remember telling him, I said, you know, Gary, I go, I'll never forget. I'll never forget when you came in the first time I met you and you said that my art was very livable. I said, I didn't know if I should take that as an insult <laughs> or, or if I should, you know, take that as a compliment. I go, I just want to let you know that I've decided I'm taking it as a compliment because, you know, you. my art isn't, isn't something that challenges somebody. It, it, it really isn't. My art is livable. You can have it in your living room and you don't have to worry about finding Jesus in your Cheerios. It really is, um, you know, it's, it's non-confrontational. I'm not going to find the Madonna in my toast. No, it's non-confrontational. It's easy. Um, but that's just my artistic style because I'm not going there when I'm creating my, this, this art and my art is reflective of how I'm feeling. And I'm, I'm not out to necessarily make a statement and, and there are other yeah. artists that are. So well, I've, no. I've decided to claim that, you know, I'm yeah. like, yeah, I'm cool with that. <laughs> well, you know, there are, um, some very famous artists that tried to depict music. Do you listen to music when you paint? I mean, you're always, really always. Okay. I, I, I have, have a rhythm. A matter of fact, I have a really, I have a couple pieces and, and there's a great one that I have um, that I, I've, I still have. I haven't, I haven't sold it quite yet, but you can actually, you can, you can actually see the run in the music. Uh, the da -da 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 you know, and you can actually see it because I actually did the run with my arm as I was painting the piece. And, and so a lot think of that musical training has maybe influenced more than, you know, with the rhythm of your strokes. Oh, it definitely has a strong influence on, on me. I mean, there isn't a piece that I've created where I've not listened to music. Um, I will actually cue up music specifically to paint, uh, to, to kind of hone in on a mood or an emotion. And, mm -hmm. and it, and that's, that's depicted. I mean, it's not necessarily rhythmic as much as there's movement, um, 
you know, they'll, but also when I paint though, I go in oftentimes, not necessarily, sometimes I have a concept in mind. I, I don't want to say I don't have a concept. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I've, I have a very, very loose sketch and, but mostly I, more often than not, I paint very emotionally. I walk in and I'm like, I feel like it's a red day. And I go over to my, I have this like shelf with these, uh, I have this ungodly amount of paint <laughs> and I go and I just like pick the colors that speak to me. And why was it of being an artist, having an ungodly amount of paint? Yeah. Oh, I have, I, I it's, it's kind of scary on my part, but yeah, I go over there and I'm like, okay, this is, this is what I am. It's a blue kind of day. It's a red kind of day. Or I'm really feeling like, you know, lime green against you know, magenta. You know, it's like, I, I just, it, I pick what I, I pick the colors based off of where I am. And then I'll queue up my playlist in accordance to, to, kind of complement that mood to kind of amplify it, amplify my mood. Mm -hmm. And that's, and, and then I'll put, put paint to canvas and, and in that state, but sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes there is a concept. I, mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes uh, those concepts sometimes are just me being cheeky. I mean, <laughs> I have, I did an entire series uh, based off of inspired by Miami Vice, like old school Miami Vice. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, it, it all stemmed, and it all stemmed from a, you know, my Spike TV was starting to play Miami Vice and, uh, on late night and my husband and I would watch it late night before going to bed. And, and I'm like, I, I, we liked it because it's like, it was like a way for me to like stop thinking before I went to bed at night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's fluff. I didn't have to think about it. And it felt very comforting because it was eighties and I'm, you know, I'm a product of the eighties. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I realized it's like, it dawned on me as much as I loved it. There, there were an obvious flaws. And one of, and the whole thing that started all was this, this big, this lovely painting that I did. And that kind of concept captured it is a, uh, you know, think about it. You've got two quote unquote undercover cops in the armpit yeah. of Miami sitting in a Ferrari Testarossa with shiny suits and shoulder pads. <laughs> How, and, and I want to come back to the word. Cops make a bazillion dollars and live in Miami and are flamboyant. Yeah. I want to come back to the words undercover cop. How <laughs> in the world is that considered undercover? I, it seems like I have a radar. If there's like a Ferrari in a two mile radius for me, I know it's in the, it's in the vicinity. I'm pretty sure a drug Lord's going to know when a Ferrari's in the area. <laughs> it's, it's, so I did a whole series based off of, uh, based off of Miami, old school Miami vice. I've done other things Love too, it. like eighties mixtapes. You know, so sometimes it's, it's cheeky. Sometimes there are other, other things that, you know, I, I have done florals. I do commissions, not as okay. often. Yeah, let's not talk about commissions next because we always kind of go from art into product. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you're really good at selling fine art. And I think that's something that really interests people is how do you sell fine art? especially without the gallery system. You know, Ashley Longshore was on the podcast and uh -huh. she's a fine artist and she has her own gallery in New Orleans and she really is cheeky to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
you know, she sells without a gallery and she only sells originals, which is fascinating mm-hmm. um, because so many people on the show have talked about selling prints and other revenue streams. So there's, there's, you know, you can always come at it from different routes. So you do commission work, right? That's, um, I hear that I a lot. Do. I do. And I don't, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. So I don't do as many commission pieces. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, I, like most artists, they terrify me. I mean, mm. they really do. I mean, it's a, it's a lot. You, you never know if you're going to, you feel, I think everybody deep down inside worries about, is this going to be what they expect? And, and for me, even more so, cause I'm, I'm a contemporary abstract artist they have no idea what's going on in my mind, let alone do I have an idea of what's going on in my mind. Do they get to pick their color scheme? Like, how do you um, do commission work for them? Do they, like, look at a piece and say, make me something like that, or or I want this color palette, or? Well, oftentimes, um, what will happen is, 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 um, a lot of my commission works, I would say, probably maybe about 70% of them, they have often purchased a smaller painting from me, usually a small mm-hmm. painting, like under a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, in the process, you know, cause when people buy artwork and they're, and they're buying fine art, they're not just buying the art, they're buying the experience of buying the art. And yes. uh, they, they like the interaction with the artist because nobody wants to just sit there and have a piece of art on the wall and not be able to say, when somebody says, oh, I love that painting, and they want to be able to say, yes, I bought it at some street market, and this crazy lady painted it. <laughs> and she said that, you know, they want, to te- they want to be able to be part of that experience of the art, be it the storyteller or, or that it speaks to them because it was someplace they went to or it's something that they can relate to. But it's, it's an experience. There's usually an emotional tie to it. But a lot of times my commission pieces have come from individuals who purchase something smaller. So they already have that comfort with me and that level of trust with me. They already like my work. And I already know what it is about the work they like. Because um, when I'm selling artwork, I you know, the worst question, uh, I mean, the worst thing that a visual artist can do is when somebody says, Oh, I like your artwork is for you to sit there and say, thank you. (laughs) That's the worst thing you can actually say because what you really should be asking them is, Oh really? What is it about the piece that speaks to you the most? And because what a great tip, because what they're doing, when you do something like that, you're inviting them to, basically sell you the art (laughs) and in the process of them selling to you the art you're learning what it is that they like about it and 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 what the limitations are you know what is it what their roadblock is maybe it's size maybe they like it but they don't like the color they're going to reveal all of those things to you and the same thing is said when when they've purchased a smaller piece and they come to you for a commission piece, you have a little bit of that. You have an advantage in that you kind of already know what their preferences are somewhat Mm -hmm. going in. And oftentimes my clients are looking for one of two things. They're looking for 
something to fill a special place in their home. And in, mm-hmm. if it's a situation like that, I often like to actually go and see where the piece is going to be because okay. I paint with metallics and iridescence and the lighting. I like to play with the metallics and iridescence, iridescence so that the lighting can kind of work with that particular piece in, in, that, in that environment. So like I had this really cool piece that I did a commission piece. Um, they wanted in a stairwell, but they wanted, it was a diptych because it, there was a vent in the middle of the wall and this big stairwell and um, it needed to straddle both sides of the vent, but there was a skylight just above the vent. So I went to the client's house and I saw where they wanted this. And while we were there, I happened to notice that they had these really cool things, little, little, little um, souvenirs from their travels. And I was talking with them and come to find out that, that uh, they love to scuba dive and travel and scuba dive all around the world. And, mm-hmm. and you know, when they contacted me, they, they just wanted me to do a, you know, they, they gave me pretty much carte blanche. They're like, we just want something that goes in the space and we like what you do, do what you do and make something for me. But I'm like, I don't want to just do, I want to do something that's special for them. So I, I was listening to their story about their travels and I went back and I'm like, you know, I think it'd be really cool if I did a very, very abstract version of basically a coral reef. Like you're down at the bottom of the thing, you know, at the, at the floor of the sea or the ocean and you're next to a coral reef and you're looking up and you see how the water is, the sunlight is bouncing off the top of the water. And so that's how I played with my iridescence because I knew that the the skylight was there at the top of the stairwell and the iridescence would be able to reflect at the top of that painting. So that would look kind of like that. And, and, and they had no idea that I was going to do something that would have that, that feel and that essence of a coral reef. But at the same time, if, if somebody didn't know it was a coral reef, they wouldn't know it's a coral reef. They'll just think, Oh, it's a really cool blue piece. (laughs) And I also designed it one step further that, you know, I designed it so that the, the diptych could actually be um, instead of being vertical, if they wanted to position it horizontally, it would still work. So if they ever moved or changed their decor or anything like that, they wanted to move it out of that spot. They had flexibility to it. But, you know, at the same time, though, that's what made it fun and challenging is is that I had that I, they didn't have any expectations. and It was me finding that, that little thing that made it special for them. I had another client who, a commission piece, I knew that she liked, uh, she was a big Disney buff and she liked hidden movies. Like she likes, like goes to Disneyland. She like her and her family, they make a game out of who can count the, the most hidden Mickey's. And so I painted her painting and I sent, I, I sent her a text. I texted her a picture of the final painting and I waited an hour and I texted her again. I said, did you find the Mickey? <laughs> Cause I actually did one in there. <laughs> like Three hours later, she goes, I found it. <laughs> but I, try to, I try to incorporate something personal. Now the other commissions that I do, uh, and they're the easier ones are uh, be, simply because they're landscapes. I will do landscapes um, and, you know, kind of more like an impressionistic abstractish kind of uh, landscape. Um, but I don't do, my rule is, is I don't do people and I don't do animals. Um, I just 
don't do living. <laughs> it's like landscapes. Okay. I can pull that off, but, um, but usually the landscapes are, are places of significance. Like, you know, somebody did it as that, that was the town where their parents met during world war two or a friend uh, celebrated their 50th birthday and, and, in, in Greece, you know, I'll do things like that. Then that's easy. You know, those are, are those still abstract. I'm sorry. Are those still abstract? Yeah, well, they're more, and they're not really as abstract. I would say they're more impressionistic. They they are, but they they still have very. They're very clearly from my hand, but mm-hmm. they're they are impressionistic more more so. Uh, my abstract pieces are they're abstract. Um, so how do you um, how do you price if you don't mind me asking? So yeah. you do original work. Do you do some like? Uh, prints and stuff as well? So I price per square inch. Pricing is like the big conversation that uh, fine artists, they're always talking about. How do you, why I brought it up is is how to, especially how do you price abstract work? Oh, it's, it's, you know, I, I think everybody has their own method. I decided a long time ago, that um, I would price per square inch. So I've calculated approximately how much paint I use in a square inch and how much that approximately costs, knowing that some paints are cheaper and more expensive. So I averaged that. So I took the average price per paint and the amount of paint that I wouldn't necessarily apply um, square inch. I put in how much do I, I make at the time when I first set up my spreadsheet, I actually have a spreadsheet. Um, and when I first set up the spreadsheet, I actually factor in how much is my time because my time is worth something. And at the time I was, um, a freelance computer instructor and I was getting paid, you know, the way I are, my argument was, is that if I'm not painting, I'm making this much money per hour. I'm working one way or another. So, if I'm painting, I need to be bringing in the same amount per hour as I am per, you know, per. So I factor in my time. I think that's really good because, you know, you got to pay the bills. Yes. So just because you're doing something you love doesn't mean it's less worthwhile. No, no. And I've, I took it this way because, you know, one thing I learned over all the years is that it, it always surprises me which pieces um, sell. My husband and I <laughs> have a little game that we play as to which piece we think is going to sell. You know, like when I have a whole new series and I put up the series in the, in the, in the gallery, um, mm-hmm. we always, we always would joke around and take bets between each other as to which piece we think was going to sell, especially when I was over at the Essex, when we had the big open houses, there was like one spot in particular that was like the money spot. Like anytime I put a painting in that spot, it usually would sell. And, Interesting. Uh, but we Why do you would, think that is? Oh, because it, it just, naturally fell into like the right <laughs> right spot finish way I don't know it just the just, lighting uh, the lighting it just it just felt right in that spot but mm-hmm. there was like two uh, there was another spot that also did that too. They, I, I, I should I should retract that there were like two spots so the question is is which of the two would go but we we would you know it would always surprise me because every now and then there would be a painting that I would have that I personally would be like I really don't like this painting. <laughs> and like I'm, I'm like, oh, I really don't like this painting yet. It would be the one that that person would, that someone for whatever reason 
would say, I want it. I, I mean, I remember there was this one painting I had, it was called Last Call. And, um, you know, somebody came through the, the this, this is when I was at the Essex. So they came through my studio and they were with a large group of people. And usually when you have a large group of people, they would come through, they drink your wine, they leave the room and that's it. Then he was with a large group that came through, they drank their wine and they, they walked out and he did not engage with me at all. He didn't look, you know, I, I've been doing this for years and you can kind of tell by body language if someone's interested or not. Yeah. Uh, or if they're just kicking your tires or if they're just um, killing time because, you know, one other little trick drinking is drinking your wine. <laughs> well, yeah, it, the kind of the, it's kind of a weird thing. Like never serve Dixie cups. I, I would advise the people who are doing it because because people feel compelled to stay in your room or in your studio or in your space until they finish their drink or their food, that, the, the drink that they've received. Uh -huh. worry about the food. People will self-moderate on food, but the drink. Um, you don't want to go too nuts, but you want to have just enough that they can sip and mm -hmm. uh, sip and stay. And the longer they sip and stay, the, it gives them you know, they, they feel like, Oh, I better look at something. And the next thing you know, they're looking at something and they're like, I kind of like this, you know? So, but this group came through, they did their, they did their typical group thing and they left. And then, um, I remember cause, uh, at the time I had, I was sharing my studio space with someone else and, and we were talking with, uh, our, you know, our, our spouses and, and my studio mate, we were all sitting around talking and this guy comes back and he pokes his head in the room. And he literally threw his credit card at me and said, <laughs> I'm not kidding. You. He literally threw his credit card at me, pointed at, he says, last call, I'll be back in 20. And I'm like, okay. And I, it wasn't necessarily a piece that I was like, I can't believe I sold that one. All right. Because it was not one that I had pegged as being a big, big influence, but somewhere, someplace there's someone who hopefully is still enjoying to this day that piece because it spoke to them for whatever reason. Oh, but Amy, I totally get it. Like, inevitably, the pieces that I think are horrid, my art agent picks. Yeah. And they get licensed. And I'm like, You're like, why? what? Why? These are not harmonious. They're not peaceful. Like, inevitably, he picks the pieces that I feel are very um aggressive or or just disharmonious they're not you know sometimes i work in all monochromatic or or you know very uh, smooth colors you know analogous colors yeah and no no he always goes for like the complementary colors that are jarring and jangling and the i don't know well no i mean it, it well for whatever reason it must connect with him because i mean in order for them to sell your work in order for an art rep to sell their work, your work, they need to have some kind of level. They have to have some level of connection to it because that's how they can sell it. They've got to, right. they've got to believe it and buy into it too. So um, when you have an artist who is working with an art rep representative, that's why it's really important to really kind of learn as much as you can about the prospective representative and, and their gallery and their clients and you have to ask yourself, am I the right fit? You know, am I the right fit in terms of a price point? Because if you're too expensive or you're, if you're too high or you're too low, um, you're, they're not going to sell your work as much. You want to, you know, they, they're going to go with, with the bread and butter, which is usually somewhere in between. Are you complimentary to other works that they have? If not, you know, 
it's going to be hard for them to sell your works because a lot of times somebody will come to them and they're looking to outfit an entire facility or, you know, so they're looking for works that are complementary. And so you want to make sure that they're representing artists that, that are complementary to what you do. And most importantly, and this is super huge, you have to have a connection with them and they have to have a connection with your art because they are the substitute for you. Now, I typically don't work with artist representation, but I have put my works, like specific works under exclusives with an agent. So Mm -hmm. my larger works, I won't do it with my smaller works, but if I have an agent who says, who reaches out to me and says, Hey, Amy, I've got, you know, I've got a client who's really interested in a large piece. They're looking for black and white. Do you, what do you have that's a large black and white or whatever in, in this size? And I'm like, well, I have this. And like, okay, well, um, can I put it under under contract? So I'm like, sure, that's fine. In my book, that's fine because they're they're sealing the deal. And if they, yeah. if they carry it across the you know finish line, that's great. They deserve that commission. But I'm not going to tie up my entire collection of work because at the end of the day, I'm the best person to sell my own work. Now, that being said, that's not the case for every artist. A lot of, there are a lot of artists out there who just really suck at selling their own art because, well, it's true. I mean, they just either they don't know how or they don't have the confidence or they, or they just don't like selling. I mean, I like people. There's not a strange, I've never met a stranger before. I have no problem talking to people. That's what people say of my mother. But it's not, that's not everybody. And I'm the exception to the rule. So a good artist recognizes where their strengths and weaknesses are. And if that's a, mm-hmm. a weakness of yours, then you need to, I, you need to find an, a representative or if you're not going to deal with a dealer or a representative, you need to find uh, someone you know, close to you, whether it's a spouse or a relative or a friend who can serve in that capacity for you. I see that a lot in art shows. There's a lot of times in art shows where, you know, you'll have the spouse or you'll have a really you know, like the best friend who tags along for art shows and they'll, they'll be the one actually doing most of the selling because the artist is not necessarily that's not their wheelhouse. And that's yeah, Well, that's like awesome. If you can find a spouse that'll do that. I know Maria Brophy has been Drew Brophy's agent for years and years and years. And she was on the show and she's done a phenomenal job of promoting him and carrying them through. Um, but what if you don't have a spouse, you know? I- yeah. Well, that's when you get, that's when you do need to find representation. If that's your weakness, you should, that's when you should, but you need to be careful because you really have to understand um, the understand how that market works, and yeah, and it is. It's a market. It's a different market. I mean, there are very very distinct markets in the art field. You've got your arts yes, and crafts, fine arts, but even within those two realms, you have um, outdoor slash indoor art shows, and then you also have like a higher caliber of shows, um, especially with the fine arts. You know, like you got your art, you know, red dot or art, my, you know, you've got your, you know, the, the higher echelon of, of quote unquote art shows, which, um, are really primarily galleries. They're not really artists. They're mostly galleries, but that's a different, it's, there's different tiers. And, and really as an artist, 
you have to understand, you know, there's differences between a local indoor, local, regional shows versus, uh, sorry, local shows, regional shows, and national shows. Those are also different flavors. I mean, I've, I've done the, you know, a gamut of them. Um, you know, you've got, you've got some artists who do, you know, regional or national shows that literally they pack up a, uh, you know, their camper and RV and that's what they do for half of the year. They, you know, they spend the winter months working on new, mm-hmm. new artwork and then they pack up and they just literally do the circuit of shows. Like, you know, you yeah. hear them say, Hey, are you going to be in Wichita next week? Are you going to be in, you know, yeah. I just talked to a gentleman named David Emmons, who's going to be on the show. And um, he used to do 36 shows a year Mm -hmm. on the road for 150 days. Now, what's amazing about him is he's converted to Facebook advertising and Facebook marketing. Now, he has a product, though. He's really turned his work. He's more of a craftsman because Mm -hmm. what he makes are hanging water gardens. He makes these beautiful, colorful glass globes that you put water in and you grow a plant in and then he wraps them in wire and copper and stained glass but what I find interesting is that I do think and this is just my opinion but I think you can find different avenues to market your art but you have to find one that works for you and like I always struggled with that like you were saying like I have difficulty letting go of original artwork because for whatever reason, I don't want to break up the collection. Like when I work in a collection, I like to put it together in a portfolio or or put it together in its little sleeves or in a drawer or in a box. And I like them to live together. <laughs> Is that weird? Um, no. But I found when I turned my artwork into a product, I found that like photography, I could let go of photography because it's a reproduction. I could let go of reproductions of my work and I could let go a lot easier. I could get around marketing and the fear of marketing by marketing iConnect crafts or the crafts products, turning those designs into a company and it was no longer me. So there was no longer um, ego, I guess, associated with the artwork and and whether somebody liked it or not didn't matter as much. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I do think a spouse can be really great, but sometimes a spouse isn't the answer. Um, You know, an agent can be really great. A gallery owner can be really great. But what I hear time and time again is that they have to be able to tell the story as well as you. And very few people can tell that story as well as you. So I guess the other route I'm thinking is um, to to divorce yourself from the work in some manner that helps you to let go of it and not be afraid of marketing it. What do you think? Well, I I definitely agree with that because, um, and this is something that I've told uh, several, you know, I'll, I'll get often some of the universities in our area, they'll they'll let loose their their students and they say, go, go forth and talk to actual working artists. And inevitably somebody finds their way into my space and, and I'll right. talk with them. And one of the biggest pieces of advice that I, I usually give them is that, you know, the... And, and part of it, I, and I've seen this, I've seen this over and over again because you know I've organized art shows, I I've been around a lot of artists, and 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is some artists, there are some who think that um, I created the piece. It should just magically sell itself. But that's that's wrong because. Yeah, they're just really, going to get it or they don't. Yeah. Right? But, but the thing is, is that in actuality, and sometimes it's kind of like, you know, they're, they're of the mindset, like the man's, I shouldn't have to sell it. You know, the man's making me have to sell it. You know, like there's like this mm. reason wanting to sell it. And it's like, no, the way I see it is that, you know, I have a hundred percent creative control of, and of my expression. It is pure expression when I'm painting and creating my works. It's not me creating a, I never think of my artwork as me creating a product. I really don't. It's truly an expression. And even with commission pieces, there's been times where I have had commission pieces that, um, that I have turned around and, um, you know, I'm like, this is not working for me. And I've totally, I've totally bailed on them and, and have done, (laughs) done another piece. I mean, there's one commission piece. I think I did five paintings before I settled on the one that I thought was the right, right one, but (laughs) I did not. I just, I, I had, I figured that if they didn't like that one, I have four others that they might like, but yeah, the one that, that I knew that in my gut said, this is the right one. But when I create my artwork, it's truly 100% my expression of me, my feelings, my emotions, you know, it's pure. The moment that I set my brush down and say, I'm done. And believe me, that took a long time to figure out when, when is something done. But in my world, when I set the brush down, it's done, even if it's imperfect, because in the corner of my eye, I might see it in the corner of my eye. I'm like, oh, there's that little spot. I have to resist the urge to go back and touch it. Once I say it's done, it's done. Imperfections and all, it's done. But once How it's do done, you decide that that is such a, a good question. Oh, well, I'll come back to that. But once it's done, it now has it now is a product that I have to sell and market so that I have the privilege to be able to do it again. Mm-hmm. So it's that mindset that you know it's the the process and the creativity is is 100% pure artistic but the result is that I have to sell it so that I have that privilege to keep feeding that that desire of expression of, of expressing myself and then the whole idea of 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 knowing when it's done is is I just once I've said it's done it's it's done and I have made the mistake before of because I paint I, I, I paint very expressive in the moment. I paint all in one sitting almost all the time. So like with rare exception, there are a few exceptions, but with rare exception, my paintings are done all in one setting, including my large paintings. So if I say it's done and I walk away, I have to resist the urge to go back and touch it because where I am 20 minutes later, I'm not in the same emotional state that I was when I was creating that place, that picture or that painting at that time, I have oh, screwed yeah. some paintings up doing that. And it took some, it was I, a learning I, curve, but once I say it's done, it's done. And I have to accept the imperfections. And, but that's just my style of painting. I'm, you know, I'm not painting fruit bowls that I'm fretting over for. 
<laughs> I'm doing them all in one in one in one moment. You know, it's you, a little different. Yes, I'll put it on a loop easily. Nice. Yeah, I get it. So, I, get it. I like it. <laughs> but you know, it's a concept that a lot of artists sometimes are don't like because it kind of goes against the grain of what some artists feel like some people don't like the feeling of feeling like their 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 work is a product or that it's commercial or marketable or they don't like that but i i really do approach my art uh my art business as a business i mean i genuinely treat my you know once the paintbrush is set down it is a business a hundred percent a business so that I have the privilege to keep doing what it is that I enjoy doing because I paint first and foremost for myself. I mean, I don't paint so that I can make money. I don't paint to pay the bills. I paint because I find it personally satisfaction. I find deep, profound personal satisfaction out of it. Mm -hmm. But I have that privilege because I do the hustle afterwards, you know. And, you know, I think that's a really good point to get to of, you know, we've covered product, we covered presentation, we've even pre pretty much covered educating your audience with stories, but how do you um, find more clients? How do you amplify and get bigger? How do you continue to find more customers and more collectors? Well, that's actually a good question. So I'm kind of late, right now at this moment, I'm actually experiencing a little bit of, um, of a downside, not ironically because of COVID, but COVID didn't really hand, help me any. But um, the year prior to to twenty twenty, I actually had some personal health issues that mm -hmm. I had major surgery, and I was I was sidelined for a, for most of that year. And so, right when I was about ready to hit the ground running with, hey, I'm I'm going to go out there and you know. Um, unfortunately for me, that was when COVID-19 decided that they were, you know, it was going to make its appearance on the uh, world market. So, um, I'm coming to off of two years where I have not had as much of a presence and it's kind of, it's kind of tough. I mean, I have to admit I, as an artist, it, you know, you're going to have ups and downs and this would be for me, it's, it is, it is a personal struggle. I, because it took a lot to get to where I was. And I know that when things open back up again, that it means I'm going to have to double down and work a little harder. Like I had gotten to the point where I no longer was really having to do outdoor art shows. I mean, some people do art, outdoor art shows, some people do different things, but I was, I had pretty much, unless I was doing it as a favor for a friend who was organizing one, I pretty much had stepped aside from, from doing them. Um, and that's because you have a gallery space and you also had, um, I had a reputation I had already built. I had a client, yeah. I had collectors I have. Yes. And, and you were actively I, involved in the artistic community of your region, right? Yes. Yes. And I, I had already, I, I was established enough that I could do that, but now that I've been off of a scene for two years, you bet I'm already looking at, at you know, I hate doing outdoor art shows. I hate them. <laughs> Why? Oh, uh, well. Because they're so I, temperamental? 
Well, because there, there are so many variables that I can't control. I can't, you know, but the only thing I can do is my due diligence and researching and, and, you know, to the best of my abilities of, of, you know, the right show. That's the important thing too. And if there's something I was to tell your listeners is that, you know, if you're going to go, regardless if it's an outdoor show, an indoor show, if you're wanting to show in a coffee shop, if you're wanting to, to get artist representation, the bottom line is, is that before you do anything, you really need to understand your art and you need to understand the person or the avatar, as they say in the business realm of who is attracted to your art. Mm. And that should determine what venue or what opportunities should drive you. I know very specifically who I could sit down and tell you zip codes. I could tell you uh, demographic information. I know who buys my art. Who buys your art? Who buys my art? <laughs> if I give that away, I can't do that. But you know, you have to do. You have to do research. You and part of that is is tracking who buys your art. You know, when somebody does buy your art, are you capturing their information? Are you putting it into a spreadsheet? Are you, you know, figuring? Are you observing who tends to stop and look at your art and and really and who tends to want to talk to you about your art i like and, that idea of, of stopping and like actually looking at who's looking at your art at an outdoor show that's a great tip yeah i mean like looking not just there because their friend is there going through your your art rack it's like who's genuinely looking and and kind of like asking yourself who is that person where would they shop where did what kind of house do they live in what kind of car do they drive? You know, what kind of money do they make? What kind of, where do they work? What kind of education do they have? You know, you have to ask yourself all those questions. And then you need to ask yourself, okay, where is that person going to go to buy your art? Are they going to go to an arts and crafts show? Are they going to go to a fine arts show? Are they going to go to an indoor show, an outdoor show? Are they going to talk to an artist rep- artist who's represented uh, um, an art rep. I mean, you kind of have to figure out who is attracted to your art and that drives your marketing and business decisions as to where you're going to put your artwork or position your artwork, where you should show your artwork, who should represent your artwork. Um, but you really have to have an understanding as to who likes your art. And that is tough and it takes time and it takes a lot of observation and some, and you have to be willing to understand that you may have some surprises, you know, you may not, it, it may surprise you who, and, and, you know, it, that way you're not, it's, it's easier to do it that way than to try to shoehorn yourself and try to appease like, you know, just because there's a big major art show in your city and everybody shows there, it might not be the right venue for you and your art. If it's not, if your clients aren't going there, it's a waste of your time and money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think this is something that I've heard over and over again. Part of the point of the podcast was for me to try and tease out these common threads, regardless of, you know, what medium or what, what, 
what style of art people do. And that is one of the things I hear over and over again is really understanding who your customer is, who your target market is. Maria Brophy in her book calls it um, your perfect customer or something like that. Yeah. Um, but it really is so true. And I thought it was really interesting that a couple of the artists said, look, depending on who your artist is, don't go to these outdoor craft shows with all these other crafters and artists. Go to the conferences that they attend. So, for example, um, Owen Garrett, he, he illustrates antique mining equipment and antique golf scenes. And so he goes to um, mining conferences. <laughs> In like Dubai and, you know, Drew Brophy, he goes to surfer conferences. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, you you really got to know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there, um, I, and I've, I've learned this not just from observing over the years, but also having organized show art shows myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been on the other end, I've been an organizer and yeah, the bottom line is, is that to be a participant in, in, in a show, um, regardless of what tier it is, whether it's a local or regional or, you know, big national show or whatever, there, you know, there are variables that an artist cannot control. And at the same time, there is an investment up front that an artist has to make, whether it's a, a jury fee, a booth fee, um, display, you know, there's, there's, there's cost and expense and the things that they can't control are things such as weather. They cannot control whether or not, um, the person, if it's an outdoor show, they can't control weather. If it's an indoor show or outdoor show, they can't control who is the person who's handling marketing. I mean, a lot of the shows are sometimes done by nonprofit organizations uh, you know, because the show's a fundraiser, but other times the shows are done by you know these you know these organizations that that put them on all across the country, and they're a little more organized and they're a little better at marketing. You know, but the question is: is are they marketing to the right people in the right way? You have no control over that, so you have to before you commit yourself to participating in in different venues, be it a coffee shop or anything like that is that you first, A, have to know who is your client, and B, is that where your client is going? And if your client is going there, okay, then you have to start doing the next level of of investigation before you commit to something. Like, okay, what are the things that you can, you know, like if it's an art show that's been going on for 30 years, you can easily go online and you can see, you can pull up pictures from the past years and you can see who else is participating. You know, in my case... I, there are some great, there's a great regional show here in town, but it skews more arts and crafts than it does fine arts. Mm-hmm. Um, I have participated in that show. Actually, there's two shows that are, that are like that. And I have been okay. And I've been, I, you know, I've, I've definitely made my nut in those shows, but was it the best use of my time and, and money and resources? Amy, you made your nut. <laughs> I made my nut, yeah. But it's it, it, it's you know you have to ask yourself that because was it the best use? I would argue in some in in one of those cases probably not, and the other yes, and the other one no, simply because you know my client typically my client typically doesn't skew towards craft shows, 
So getting that, exposing myself to new clients, which is what your question was, is how do you expand your market? How do you, it it wasn't going to really necessarily expand my market because my, the type of person that I would attract is not necessarily going to have been there naturally anyways. Um, Whereas one of the other shows that even though it skewed more crafts, there was still the possibility simply because of the demographics that typically skewed at that show. And I, and I knew that just from having attended those shows, walked through those shows, seeing who attends them, knowing what zip codes and, and where they tend to market, where are their, you know, how do they market and who do they market to? I knew that there was a greater chance that they would buy, there was a greater chance that I would have some potential clients coming through there than the other one. Yeah. So you don't have to research the shows and whether it's pulling up, um, you know, pulling up the previous year's uh, participants and pulling up, um, you know, pictures uh, and just kind of climbing social media or the Internet and seeing what were people saying or who were who were posting or, you know, or you can even when you just do a Google search. You can see the previous year's advertising and marketing. You can mm-hmm. see where did they advertise, where did they market? And that should be a, a guide for you. But if you don't have a clue as to who who likes your art, um, that's you, that's not going to help you at all. You've got to really understand who likes your art. I really like the idea of researching the venues in conjunction with your understanding who your target market is. I mean, I will readily admit I did shows when I was in my 20s and 30s that I just went. You know, I was just so excited to show my work. I, I think one time in my late 20s, I showed outside of the Broad Street Market. <laughs> you know, it's a farmer's market. People stopped and looked. I didn't sell a thing. Not a thing. You know, but I was just so excited that I could show my work at a farmer's market, you know. Yeah, it sounds cool. And that's the other thing, too. I mean, sometimes, sometimes you have to make exceptions. There are some times where it's okay to, to go in knowing that you're not going to make money and that yes, you are, um, you're just, you're just putting your name out there. So like, for example, when I had, when I was at, at the Essex art studios, um, I used to help organize the art walks there when we'd have the big open house and people would walk through and literally have thousands of people come through on, on the weekends. And, um, one of the thing, one of the things that you know was really obvious is that um, you know there were uh, we would have what we call outside artists. We call them outside wall artists. People would pay like fifty bucks, seventy five bucks to show on a ten foot space of wall because in the building there were sections of the building that were used actually by our local public school for storage. <laughs> <laughs> of textbooks and science kits. And, um, but there was no art studios where those wall, where the outside walls were in the hallways. Mm-hmm. So there was no art and the only way, and we didn't want to cut off the artists that were at the other end of the building where they had art studios and they had their art on the walls outside and they had art in their studios. And, but then they would have these big stretches where there was nothing on the wall because there was no studios there because they were being used. This, the spaces were being used for storage Right. So we would invite outside artists to show on those and, and 10 foot segments and to help draw 
artist through the building to all points of the building. That makes sense. And, yeah, it makes great sense. But so the argument, so when I was, you know, cause I would have to recruit artists and I'd have to get people to sign up to do that. And I'm like, you know, Hey, think about it this way. It's a two night event. And each night is like four hours. It's like two hours. You know, if, if you think about it, it's like $50 investment. You're spending $25 a night. What else would you be doing for $25 a night that is going to, at the very minimum, get your name out there? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't sit there and promise them that they were going to make sales because that was not going, I can't promise that. But what I can promise them is that people will have the opportunity to meet them. That I can promise. And for $25, for them to have, be, have the ability to put their business card in someone's palm and introduce themselves and introduce their art to people, that was worth it. And if they were smart, they would do it more than once. Because one thing I found in that kind of situation, if you find yourself being able to do a, a, a show that repeats um, on a regular basis is to do it and then ask very politely and very nicely if you can be set up in the same place. Because one thing I have found is that people like to visit art before they buy art. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many times I've had a client who came to visit a piece of work like three or four times before they finally bought it. There was one case where I had a painting that this guy came to three of those shows and he came into my studio space and he'd go right to the, the first thing he would do is go right to that painting, stare at it for like three, four minutes, then go get a cup of wine and then go back over to the painting and stare at it for another 10 minutes. And eventually he'd walk out of the room. And then the one time that I had finally taken it out of the frame and put it in, in the, in the sling, uh, he walked in and it wasn't in the frame and it wasn't where it was. And he freaked out and he was like, he spent like five minutes, like finding it, finding, finding it. And you could tell he was like panicked and worried that someone else bought it. And oh. then he found it. He's like, I got to buy this. <laughs> it's it like, to him. but it's one of those things where art, sometimes people, especially if someone has never bought, and this is more so with original art than a print. I will say this, this is a very distinct difference from buying a print versus buying original art. Some people feel like they need permission to buy original art. And and that means they have to give themselves that permission or they need, they, they, some people for whatever reason don't feel like they're worthy of buying original art. And I think they should. And, And that's part of my job as an artist is helping them to connect, but also making sure that they feel feel like they are worthy of being able to buy that piece of art because original art, because some people don't think it's, it's a weird thing because original versus a print, a print is a copy and everybody, some people are, are, um, my husband's like this. He, he's, he doesn't think he, he doesn't think he could possibly ever have original art. I'm like, why not? Why can't you? Married to an artist. I know. It's like, but you can have an original piece. You can have one. He's like, but for whatever reason, he's got it in his head that he's not worth, like he's not worthy of it. It's like people have it in there's this misconception that only really wealthy people or, or people of a certain echelon can have it. And it's like, 
Now, my art is pretty affordable, and yes, you can have it, but it's like this weird psychological thing that's, that sometimes people can't get over the idea that they too can have original artwork. So especially if it's the first time that they've ever bought an original piece of art, mm -hmm. they have like a little mental, you know, little speed bump that they have to get over. And so those are the people who tend to visit. <laughs> it's either the people who can't get past that, that don't think that they're worthy of it, or the people who simply can't afford it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, you know, I've always liked original work, but I, I kind of get what you're saying because uh, it is a different way of, of thinking, you know, it's an investment and it's, it's like buying a pet or something. You're going to have it a long time. A print you don't feel so bad about like, oh, if it gets damaged or hurt or, you know, I want some new decor, you just throw it away. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of people don't see themselves as collectors either. And actually, mm -hmm. I will say one of my best collectors who is now, I would say, one of my most favorite he's not just a collector. He's now a really good friend of mine. I've gotten to know he was, he bought, he bought original works from me when I, when I was at the very beginning of my, of my art career, mm. he has collected my works throughout the years. And he's been immensely supportive of, of me. He's the best patron I've ever had. That's and, um, but I'll remember that, you know, that first painting there, there was that, there was that hesitance and, you know, and, but once, but once you make that commitment, you know, cause, cause I think they, it, cause it is. And as I mentioned before, you know, people, people, it's not when you're buying original art, it's not just the art you're buying, it's the experience and it's the, there, there's so much more that comes with it. Does that make sense than buying a print? Yeah. There's so much more emotional buy-in and buying an original piece of art as opposed to a print. And so, you know, for some people, you know, they're hesitant because of that, because, you know, they're like, am I worthy of this? Am I capable of, of being a good steward of this? Am I, you know, mm. and, and, you know, the, the job of, of myself as an artist or as a rep, as a rep or whoever who's doing the selling is to help those individuals, you know, understand that, yeah, it's okay, dude. This is, this is for you. This is, this is, if it speaks to you, this is yours yeah. and you should, you should, you should have this because if it's, if it's speaking to you, yeah, Amy, do you ever provide like um, supplementary materials like for the care of your fine art? I've actually gotten this from one of the pieces I collect art and mm -hmm. I make art and I collect art. And I remember one time a um, painter had attached to this piece that I bought um, care directions, like basically how to clean it, how to, you know, use use um, a very soft dust cloth, you know, it was directions on how to care for original art. And I thought that was brilliant. 
I don't. Um, I might would actually consider that as intimidating because somebody's like, oh, God, I've got to care for it, like a chia pet or something, and I might kill it. And, <laughs> and they think back to that chia pet that they may have killed. But at the same, in the same breath, though, I am... I also am speaking from the fact that I work primarily and almost exclusively in acrylics and you can't get more durable than acrylics. I mean, you're basically painting with glue and, um, it's pretty durable. I have a painting that I, I created that's hanging in my bathroom above my clawfoot tub. And when it gets hairspray on it, I just, you know, hit it with a, soft cloth with a little bit of, you know, soap and water and it comes off clean. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm probably not the best person to ask for Karen feeding on my paintings, but, um, I love that they're not precious to you, though. I mean, I recently have just started painting with acrylic after a long absence. I've been doing watercolor for a long time now, and I was always more of a photographer and I finally came back to acrylics just literally this last month or so because I've always been like, oh no, I've got to do oil. I've got to do oil. Like, because oil is just, you know, what the great masters did. Like, why would I settle for anything less? But, um, then I was like, no, I need to be able to move faster. I can't wait for these things to dry. I'm just, I'm just going to go with the acrylic and they really have gotten so great nowadays. Um, Oh, I love acrylics. They're so much more vibrant and I'm impatient. I, I will use a blow. I use actually, like I said, I paint all in one session and I layer, I layer my work and I paint white, wet and wet, but I also layer as well. And I use a blow dryer. I, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I'll use a blow dryer. I'll also water things down to, to get more, you know, more of a translucent kind of a, yeah, I, I play with water. I play with hair dryers. I, um, but yeah, the big thing is, is it all dries quickly and I don't have to pull hair out of it. So that's, that's all I care about. But I think the blessing that I have is that not having been formally trained and not having all these rules that have been established as to how you have to do this or how you have to do that, or how the care and feeding of your art, of, of your materials, um, it does allow me that opportunity to not be, not hold things so precious. Does that make sense? Because oh, it absolutely does. Jennifer yeah. uh, Mercedes was on and she's, uh, oh, you got to check out her work. I think you might like it. It's kind of contemporary abstract, but with figures in it. So she does more like pet portraiture, but it's kind of like pet portraiture meets um, Basquiat. Like straight art because she uh -huh. writes words in it and it's scribbly and it's scratchy and when she was on the show I was on her website digging around and I encountered um like a free form um note that she had written to herself and published on her website and she is a formally trained artist and this note was a basic uh, it was a note to self of all the things she had to let go of from her formal training like, yeah. it's okay to hold the paintbrush like a pencil. No, I will not, you know, I mean, it was really trying to overcome a lot of what the um, teachers had instilled in her. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is a huge, uh, like I said, it was a gift that I gave myself because I, I understood having gone through that, on, you, you have to understand that 
why I did that primarily was that in college as a music major, I was a music education major. I wanted, like I said before, I wanted to be a high school band director. Mm-hmm. And um, at the college that I went to for the instrument that I, you know, I was instrumental and vocal major, but for the instrument that I was cup that I was, was seeking my, my major in, they actually had to bring in an adjunct professor who taught at another neighboring college and only had, I was the only education major she had. All of her other majors were performance majors. Hmm. And in music, in college, in particular with performance majors, a lot of times your performance majors have huge egos and the kind of like the job of the instructor is to kind of beat those egos down because, you know, the real world is, is if they were professional musicians, they're going to get eaten alive anyways. So they might as well get toughened up in college. The problem was, is that I was just wanting to be a measly little old high school band director. And I didn't need necessarily to be the best performance major in the world. I just need to have a really good handle of what I was doing and an understanding of what I was doing. Mm-hmm. My instructor, on the other hand, you know, being from the realm, uh, she was a performer herself, a professional musician, and all of her students were professional musicians. And it was a situation, the whole reason why I left it was because something that I loved so much became something that I hated. Oh. Because I was I I I hated going to my lessons. She I I it was um. I was just she was just it was, cruelly. Yeah. She critical. Yeah. She ruined it for me. I mean, really did the, the experience totally took something that I had a tremendous amount of joy and really made it unpleasant. And so when I started painting, I made that promise to myself and that gift to myself that I wasn't going to put myself in that situation. And it's really interesting because this has come up with, um, Josie Lewis talked a little bit about her formal training and having to let go of it because she does these like rainbow chunky, thick, acrylic paintings now and she was formally trained and this is what sells for her but it wasn't academically acceptable yeah you know it's bizarre well and that's the beauty of it i i I love the fact that i could care less about what is acceptable i could care less i mean and that's the other thing too is that um selling primarily original artwork i i i really don't sell much in the way of prints i don't most of my works are are originals that the works that I sell are originals. Right. And um, so you have small, medium, and large, and then you do commission, right? Yes. And my, I, I like to think of my small paintings as a gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you start collecting my artwork. Um, you should always have, if you're, you, you should always have something that somebody can acquire for under a hundred dollars. And oftentimes my commissions, which are thousands of dollars will, will stem from someone who purchased something that was under a hundred thousand. Under a hundred thousand, uh, under a hundred dollars, <laughs> under a hundred dollars, um, but you get the idea. But but the thing is, is that it, it the art world can be can be brutal, and I have to. I will tell you, although I gave myself that gift, 
it doesn't mean that I wasn't self-conscious. I mean, I, here I was, I was in a building surrounded by professionally trained artists and they, I know that there were some artists who hated me in that building because I sold at every single show. There are artists who will go months or years without selling an, a piece of art. And yet I sold at every single show. I've always, I think there's only been, in all the years that I've sold art, I think there's probably only been two, maybe three maximum shows or opportunities where I've not sold. And, um, but I went into it knowing and not expecting that. I, it was one of those situations where I, I knowingly went into it accepting that, but you know, it, it, it really bothered some people, especially early on in my career. There were some artists that really hated me. Yes. And I have found that essentially there are, there are some artists who view, who will always view any artist, regardless of what your genre is as competition. There are some artists who are, who could care less and they're just wanting to share and comfort and nurture and help you. And then there, there are uh, a faction of people that are somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. And I like to think of myself as having benefited from really building a network of friends, really great friends. Um, you know, two people that come to mind that I, over the years have really meant a lot to me were Marion Corbin Mayer and Gary Kessler. Um, they were huge for me here in the Cincinnati area. And in terms of giving me that support and that nurturing and, you know, helping me build my confidence and, um, yeah, I still work with them tremendously. And, and, but, you know, and then growing, you have to have some thick skin in this industry. I mean, it's, you know, it's not for everybody. I'm just, I am an exception. I understand and I, I realize that I'm an exception to the rule. I have the personality type I, uh, that is not typical for this profession. I have the technical and business aspect, which is not t- typical for this profession. I, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm an anomaly. But the thing that I did is I surrounded myself by people who really, really made a big difference. So the the best advice I can give any aspiring artist or emerging artist is really surround yourself with those who can be a truly supportive network for you. And as you grow, that is great advice. It really is. That is really great advice. So we have to uh, start winding down a little bit here (laughs) and roll into one of our last questions, which is how do you have success? And I think that is a great gateway question to what we just talked about is having really good, not just mentors, um, you know, mentors are a great way to to get a support system. Uh, Certainly, if you can't be in a city where there's a lot of opportunities for for mentors or or people um online listening to podcasts like this listening to other artists talk about how they did it i think is a great way but how do you measure success amy how to out what makes you feel successful at the end of the day because i think we all have to kind of find our own measure of mm-hmm. success Um, we as artists, I think, tend to bounce from one thing to the next and maybe not always stop and appreciate 
what we've done, whether it's finishing a big piece, whether it's selling a piece, whether it's getting our show, we just keep going, 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 going. Um, how do you celebrate? How do you measure success? What makes you feel successful? Well, yeah, that's a, an excellent question. And I, I tend to just, I just can't tend to keep rolling, but I think for me, success is, you know, having mentioned before, um, you know, I have been very fortunate that I've had tremendous opportunities in my life. And with those opportunities, I've also had some tremendous struggles and challenges in life and which afford me perspective. And, um, I think for me, success is, is that at the end of the day, am I happy in what it is that I'm doing? Mm. And so long as I'm still happy painting and I'm able to, you know, the, the aspects of my art business that I could care less about, like who, who really likes doing sales tax? <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. But you know, if, if, if the, the happiness that is derived from creating the work and sharing my work with others still outweighs the not so awesomeness things that I don't like doing like taxes or, uh, you know, anything else. <laughs> yeah, like website updates yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the things that, you know, I, I think that, that that is successful because I, you know, and in, in my particular case, I recognize and understand that I am different from a lot of other artists. I do possess talents and skills that, that others do not have. Like I, I do fortunately have a background in web design and I have, you know, I'm, I am your Microsoft office specialist. I used to teach that for years. So I have, a whole realm at my fingertips that I can exploit to my advantage in terms of marketing and bookkeeping and other things like that. But for me, and, and this is super important because I do know, and if you've ever heard of Clifton strength finders at all, um, it's, it's a great book, which, um, it's a book that talks about the different strengths that individuals can have. And mm -hmm. your, your, every individual has a, a mix of certain strengths that make them uniquely who they are. And there are some strengths that are natural and cannot be learned and others that are learned or as a result of environment. But Clifton Strength Finders, um, one of my strengths, um, you know, is that I... I, uh, I have is belief and belief for me is not a spiritual thing. It is that I have to believe a hundred percent in what it is that I am doing or vesting my time in mm -hmm. for me to be engaged. And if I am not, if I don't believe in what it is that I'm doing, then I will disengage and I'll, you know, wipe my hands and walk away and not think a thing about it. That's just, who I am. And so for me, success is, is that at the end of the day, did I meet that goal? <laughs> am I still happy? Am I, am I not so disenfranchised that I want to walk away and say, I'm over it? Um, and, and do I find it 
personally rewarding. And for me that, that putting paint to canvas, the power that, that, and that surge and that joy that I get from that so overwhelms any of the things that I can't stand. (laughs) And that sounds like success to me. That sounds like. That is, that is success, but it can be challenging for people. And you know what it, it, but it's only because I have a true understanding of who I am and what, what drives me and, and who, who is attracted to my art and what drives them and, and being able to identify those things and marry those things is what contributes to making my success. Well, fantastic. Awesome. Amy, thank you so much for all of your information. I think that you've provided some really interesting perspectives, um, particularly on the fine art world and making a living as an abstract, contemporary abstract artist. Oh, well, thank you very much. I hope it was helpful. And I, I invite, I, I'm of the belief that I am definitely of the camp that I feel that if people have questions or if they need that, that oomph for that support, I'm there to lift people and help them see their potential. So oh, I'm cool. a, well, where can they find you? They can find me. Uh, I'm easily reached through my website at www.a as an apple, y as in yellow, d as in dog, z as in zebra, n as in nancy.com. Or they can find me on Facebook, AYDZN.com. Um, but I definitely believe in in lifting other artists up because I, I you know, yeah, I don't see other artists. Everybody's unique and, and their expression is unique. So how can we possibly be competitors, you know? And I'm, I'm there to support and cheer for others because that's what, that's what you should do. Fantastic. Well, we will link to that down below as well. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank I you. am going to love sharing this episode. Thank you very much. I'm I'm thank you for inviting me and and I hope hope this is enjoyable for everyone else.